Are you a fan of the small ball? Jealous of all the inside analysis and crack on the football pod? Well, we've got you covered with the hurling pod. Join myself, Will O'Callaghan, along with James Skehill and Paul Murphy for the best insight this hurling season. Coming soon to OTB Sports. Now you're very welcome along to the Sunday Papers. Joe Malloy with you this afternoon. Very happy to say in studio, Shane Keegan, who's a manager and coach in the League of Ireland. Shane, great to have you in. Cheers, Joe. And we have Kieran Aralig, journalist with us as well. Hey, Kieran. Morning, lads. Great to have you with us. So back pages are full of either Harry Kane celebrating or Mayo happy in Crow Park last night. For instance, this back page here is the Mail on Sunday. Double dose pointing out that this is two wins in a row for Mayo against uh, Dublin. Mayo follow up All-Ireland semi-final win over uh, Dubs as Desi Farrell's men left rooted to the foot of Division 1. A five-point win for Mayo last night at Crow Park. And just on that theme, because it is all over the back pages, Joe Brawley, for instance is writing, Kieran about Mayo and about Dublin and you picked out this piece. Uh, Fallen Stars look like a team who will ply their trade in Division 2 next year. He says in his piece, it's impossible to improve on perfection, but even so, this Dublin team is a disorganised mess. Up front, they have zero teamwork and as a result, they never looked remotely capable of winning. Uh, Dublin, no clear idea of how they wanted to play, quickly degenerated into a team that will be playing in Division 2 next year. And he talks about the various mistakes and the balls kicked away and the lack of a plan. Uh, Kieran Kilkenny couldn't win it on his own and Mayo were enjoying themselves. So you picked out that piece. I'm sure you're as struck by all of us at the speed of the decline, Kieran, at the moment. It's very pointed. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and, and it's, 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 it's incredible. And it's, it's all the more amazing given how vociferous people have been for the last few years about how you know this is a, a juggernaut that will never end and split the county in two and blah 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 um and i think the intro actually the first paragraph in in joe's piece there was that was was, was wonderfully done actually he said in crow park last night brian fenton kieran kilkenny and dean rock bore the expressions of lads who had been transferred without warning from real madrid to wickham wanderers and it's um it, it kind of makes you think a little bit of Man United fans, um, Barcelona fans even now as well, in the sense that you think there's something impregnable there that'll never change. It's always going to be this way. And they can just plummet, you know, and it's, it is quite remarkable how quickly this has happened. There were, there were signs last year, I'm not a GAA expert, but watching on from the outside, there were signs last year that things weren't going to work. I think um, you had a couple of people like, like you know, I think Maliki Clerken said it, that, that Dublin won't win the, the All-Ireland this year, uh, last season. Um, you know, they fell out, you know, quite a handily to Mayo in the semis and now they've gone, is it three in a row they've lost now? So to, to kind of drop from where they were to this and do it in this speed is remarkable and I think it'll be very interesting to see exactly how they react. There's an element chain with this slight slippage we saw last year. They win the All-Ireland initially under Desi and that's very much the COVID All-Ireland. And then last year we saw slippages, small things, cheap fouls when otherwise they would have worked back diligently and not given away the easy free or just uh, a certain emphasis on possession and movement. But there were slippages. And so the, I was thinking of that, you know, the uh, how do you go bankrupt? Well, slow at first mm. and then all of a sudden. <laughs> and they're in that all of a sudden phase now, like the arse has fallen out of it, it feels like. It does. It does feel that way. We could still all be made to look very, very silly. I mean, yeah. they have plummeted all the way from favourites to India Ireland to second favourites to India Ireland. <laughs> so I wouldn't be getting completely carried away yet. No, but at the same time as somebody who extols the virtues of coaching and management and the effect that it can have on individuals or on a team, I mean, this is a prime example of, you know, as as Kieran has just said, there were so many different reasons listed around Dublin's dominance. It now appears that 
probably the main reason behind Dublin's dominance was Jim Gavin and what he managed to assemble around him which was a not just a, a superb manager but a phenomenal management team and you know coming in behind look oh, you could argue United are obviously still trying to find Ferguson's replacement and there's numerous examples of it but you know I really didn't relish the job for him when he was coming in there to be coming in behind somebody who had been just as phenomenal as Jim Gavin had been and and had yeah. that success and look it did look as though all might be fine as you say in that first year but you know Jim Gavin is, is arguably you know right up there as possibly one of the greatest Gaelic football managers of all time and, and, and Desi is not an awful manager he's just not Jim Gavin and I realise it's look there's a little bit of player turnover that feeds into it as well but I, I do think that is the, the number one factor in, in the change that we've seen is, is his departure from the scene I would tend to agree and that seems to be twofold one the culture he set and the standards he set and the personal skill set that he seemed to foster and then secondly man he was obviously an unbelievable innovator when it came to strategy and game plans and how they went about their business and there are just so many things when you watch Dublin these past couple of weeks that stand out a mile as being reprehensible in the Gavin era so I was keeping notes and you know a minute 35 where Dublin have a free out maybe just past their own 22 and it's Brian Howard on the ball and he just skies it up in the air, barely makes halfway and it's a 50-50 ball. And you're thinking, that's just bereft of any thinking, of any plan. I mean, and that's not an attack on Brian Howard. I mean, he's, he's part of a system, but you think under Gavin, the that question doesn't there is, happen. But the question there is why. So why why did he why did that happen yeah. last night? As opposed to why did that never seem to never have, have concentration levels dropped? Has application dropped? Has has understanding of the game plan dropped? What do you know? I, I don't know the answer to those questions. It, it's just look, you re, you meet. I do t- I I do tend to I suppose describe it as there, there's kind of there's maybe ten percent of of the population in in sport who are better than the rest okay but then there's one percent that are just you know once in a lifetime kind of people and and just irreplaceable really and and he gavin for me absolutely falls into that one percent i mean i would absolutely love to see jim gavin take over another county i think that would be fascinating fascinating to see was this the right man in the right place at the right time or could he you know not not pull off you know five in a row or whatever but could he pull off something uh, remarkable with another county Um, because he is he is a truly remarkable individual so I'd love to see that test taken on we probably won't we almost certainly won't but be a lot of fun it would Kieran. final word on what you expect from Dublin this year will they pull it together at the end well, is Stephen Cluxton coming back? Have we have we ruled that out? Or I think we have. <laughs> I think we, I think we yeah, finally I think have might, ruled it out. Yeah, probably running a mile. We might be looking. He might be looking on now and then. But also, I mean, I, I don't know, Steve, uh, Shane, that you might have read um, a book. Um, oh God, I can't remember the exact name. The captains, the captain, something, and it was it was an an, an argument about whether. It was management players or a captain that made the greatest teams. Was the greatest it the, cap- teams. the captain's class? Was it? Um, I think, know, I think that like might that. be. Yeah, yeah something yeah, like that. It, yeah, very good. And, and he went on to speak about uh, analysing, you know, assessing basketball teams, the great baseball teams, great soccer teams, club and international, uh, New Zealand, and and dwelled on the captain as being the big thing. And I, I, I'd often now for the last twenty years, you know, writing about sport, I'd have always thought that the manager. Um, I, go, I always go back to Martin O'Neill coming into a team that was 21 points behind Rangers, not as much money, blah, blah, blah. And he turned it around and won a league by 18. And I always thought the manager is the most important person at any club. He can he can change it um, in so many ways and in, in, instigate such change. But the captain, there's a strong theory that 
you know, I, I think it's often overplayed in, in Irish and British sports, you know, the captain of a rugby team, whatever else, but they can also be so important in the dressing room. And I wonder if the changes that have that have happened with Dublin as well in that regard might be might be something um more more tangible and more important than we thought. Not just Jim. I've no answer for you basically, Jeff. I don't know what's <laughs> gonna happen this year. No one does. No one does. <laughs> Isn't it a great no. feeling though? Yeah. If they lose to Mayo in the final, and I'm speaking as a dub, I'd be delighted just to see Mayo finally get that and, and, and not just beat them in a in a in a semi or a league game. Mm. Fellas, let's turn to pages two, three, four and five of the Sunday Independent. So four page piece, Paul Kimmage, who hasn't had a piece in a couple of weeks, so I suspect he's been working very hard on this. And it's a smoke and fire in Irish horse racing, obviously a subject he's been covering a lot over the last couple of years. Uh, smoke and fire, Stephen Mahan. His life in racing has brought him joy, disappointment and vilification. But when he began supplying information on alleged doping of horses to the authorities, he thought he was doing the right thing. So, in effect, this is an interview with Stephen Mann. And this is part one of certainly two, if not three, I don't know, and probably uh, more beyond this initial series. So, Stephen Mann, a trainer, in effect, it's an interview with him, brilliant uh, picture of him. Uh, taking a drag from a cigarette next to a horse box and staring down the camera. And that's how the piece opens. In effect, uh, Stephen Mann takes a drag on a cigarette, blows smoke through an open window in the kitchen. It's a Sunday morning in late January at his boyhood home in North County, Dublin. And eight months, writes Paul Kimmage, have passed since a Thursday evening in Galway when they, that's the IHRB, rushed into his yard and knocked him to the floor. An inspection of uh, his yard has resulted in uh, a ban, a four-year ban, since been reduced by six months, but a four-year ban for neglect of horses, in effect, uh, the welfare of horses under his control. So that's the longest ban in history uh, for this kind of offence. And uh, so to quote, for instance, some of the pieces around that time, Skies at the Races. Uh, while the Gordon Elliott case was obviously very bad, uh, this case much worse. This case involved actual suffering of horses with numerous thoroughbreds enduring unnecessary and prolonged pain whilst under the care of a licensed trainer. The details that were published by the IHRB are genuinely upsetting, particularly for those that spend their lives putting uh, so much thought and effort and affection into the caring for every need of the thoroughbreds that they are responsible for. Uh, The Irish Times, for instance, say that the uh, photographs taken by the IHRB officials during the course of two inspections at Mahan's rented premises in County Galway in April, uh, judged by details in the IHRB report released on Thursday, uh, those photos would make for grisly viewing if publicly available. So over the course of the inspection, uh, one horse was uh, found with a chronic and obvious injury that left it in pain for much longer than should have been the case if proper standards were uh, followed. Officials found another seven horses inadequately uh, cared for in a field and one horse had to be put down uh, the day after the inspection due to a catastrophic injury. So that's the initial opening of Paul Kimmage's piece here and he references those pieces in the paper at the time and he writes but here's what the columnist did not address uh, these horses that had endured unnecessary and prolonged pain had owners had any of these owners sought compensation from Mahan expressed a grievance lodged a complaint what if some had actually spoken for Mahan at the hearing what if they were continuing to pay him training fees what if the only complaint any of them had made was about Lynn Hillier, the IHRB's chief veterinary officer and head of anti-doping. What kind of column would that make? 
He doesn't expand upon that. So I don't know how many owners did speak up at Mann's trial. I don't know if some or none expressed a grievance. This suggests that the owners were quite happy, but I've no explanation as to what exactly we mean. I mean, it's not laid out in a clear and factual way. It's just uh, suggesting there's something there which is suggesting that the owners hadn't sought compensation or expressed a grievance. But again, we're talking about up to 11 owners here, probably just fewer than 11, 11 horses. So I don't quite know what that's in reference to. But um, certainly the point is made that uh, had any of these owners sought compensation from man, question mark, expressed a grievance, question mark, lodged a complaint, question mark. It's a rhetor- they're rhetorical questions. They suggest, I don't know what you're reading that is, Shane. It suggests no, but I don't know exactly what the owners did feel about the situation. Well, I suppose first, from my point of view, to speak as the piece uh, about the piece overall as a whole. Okay, I, I wouldn't be a, a big horse racing guy, um, and to be honest with you, the drugs and sport thing is is not something that tends to drag me in um, as a narrative either. To be honest with you, if this wasn't a Paul Kimmage piece, which I I'm pretty much will read anything that Paul writes, if this wasn't a Paul Kimmage piece, I don't think I I would have actually read it. It's not the kind of thing I would be drawn to, sure. and yet you do sit down you do read it and you're I personally anyway was completely and utterly captivated by it and, and drawn in by it and I feel like I'm ha- you know when you finish a, uh, what's the one going on at the moment Pam and Tommy and you have to wait a week before the next episode is out <laughs> I, I, I want I want to read the rest of this immediately and I'm almost annoyed that I have to wait another week to read the rest of it um, but not that there's holes but Definitely the bit that you've... I'm, I'm confused by the bit that you've quoted there because I'm following it all along and you're reading, you know, as you've said, the, the different pieces that, that the Irish Times have said about the the, the case and, and Skies at the Races have said. And then you read your, the piece you've just highlighted there. And So what is he saying to me? Is he saying that there's some falsehood in some of this or is he saying to me that, well... Did he do these things or did he not do these things? Or is it fine that he did these things because the owners didn't have a problem with him doing those things? I, I was just, I was a little bit confused by by, by that piece, certainly. Yeah. Um, and as I say, look, I'm coming at this very naively. I'm, I'm far, far, far from an expert in it. But I think most people would be in a similar-ish shoes to myself, you know. I, I think so. Like, I don't know, is that a well-known issue about the owners mm. or not? I haven't, I've Googled, I haven't seen anything obvious. But look... This is part one of two, so maybe maybe that he returns to that. I'll just I'll just press on for a second, Kieran, and just try and give a. I mean, I think you need to read this piece. Is the general point I would make. You know, we can only sum it up so much. Uh, Then the piece progresses to a bit about man on his background and a difficult childhood and his efforts to make it as a jockey, which didn't quite work out. And then uh, he fell into training, and you know he he remembers uh, buying his first horse for an owner for. Uh, 30 grand from Jim Bulger and Jim Bulger was very very good to him and Bulger obviously has really got the ball rolling on this issue by uh, speaking out very strongly to various publications and he bought the horse from Jim Bulger Bulger was looking for 40 he had 30 to spend from the owner and Bulger made a deal with him I'll take the 30,000 when he wins his first race you give me 5,000 and when he wins the second I'll pay you the other five and uh, Bulger kept in touch with him and that's how the relationship started says Mahan he was teaching me how to train Bulger would check in and are you doing this and you should run him that day because the ground will dry and he'd better on that ground he'll win and that seemed to be a, a very good relationship that has uh, survived so here's where we get to the really damning uh, testimony when it comes to where horse racing potentially is so he's 
He's racing and as a trainer and he's struggling. Uh, by the summer of 2020, he hadn't had a winner since the summer before. And he says, I couldn't understand it. I'd be going to races saying, I have a few bob in this horse, he's flying. And I'd be driving home saying, what the F is going on? How did I get it all so wrong? Then he got a call from an old friend who'd been a small time trainer until the game got too tough. For the purposes of this article, his name is John Doe. So John Doe is the friend. Stephen Mahan is being interviewed here, the trainer. I'm 39 years in racing, that man says, and there's probably no yard in the country, England or Ireland, that I wouldn't know someone. So uh, John Doe, writes Paul Kimmage, gave up his licence. He took a job in a prominent Irish yard run by Trainer X. So Trainer X, John Doe works for Trainer X. John Doe called Stephen Mann. He called me one night and now I'm struggling. It's not the horses, John Doe said. It's what you're running against. I said, what do you mean? He said, you want to see the shit the horses are getting in Trainer X's yard. They come in the back gate as pigeons. They go out to the races as ostriches. So everybody talks in racing, writes uh, Paul Kimmage. It was John Doe who talked to Mahan about everything he'd seen. It was Mahan who talked to Bulger about everything he'd been told about Trainer X. It was Bulger who talked to Mahan about the best way to proceed. And it was Mahan who picked up the baton and talked to Lynn Hillier. Lynn Hillier is the chief veterinary officer at uh, the Irish Horse Racing Ireland offices. And he says of Lynn Hillier, she wanted to know it all. She felt like my best friend. So... uh, on we go and, and the peace documents Mahan feeding information to Lynn Hillier and, and expanding on what John Doe told him about the situation. So uh, Stephen Mahan first started talking with Lynn Hillier in July 2020 um, and they met up subsequently, he thinks, at uh, race in Kilbegan. So here's another point from John Doe about the Dobin world. Uh, so he's talking about a certain substance, a corticosteroid. It's used like salt here. They're so effing cute. They have everything covered. How? Asks Stephen Mann. They ship the horse down to me in the pre-training yard. I feed him with this and inject him with that. Lynn Hillier arrives. Where's the horse? Well, he's in the pre-training yard. Why is he down there? Oh, he's a lung infection. She goes to the medical book. The vet has logged him as being on medication. Book closed. They juice him for three weeks and leave him a week for the stuff to clear. And then he goes back to the training yard. I'm telling you, man, it's effing unreal. But he's, this is Trainer X, sailing close to the wind. What do you mean? He had a winner last week. He didn't want to run him. He was on the powder and hadn't come down, but he was under pressure from the owner and didn't think he'd win. He pissed in. So uh, now Jim Bulger's interested, writes Paul Kimmage, and uh, the conversations continue with Lynn Hillier and Stephen Mann is, is feeding information. And then, writes Paul Kimmage, something extraordinary happened. It was a Friday afternoon. John Doe, I just finished at Trainer X's when an order came down to move some horses from the yard. Where do you want to move to? To blank. We're not being told where they're moved to in the piece, I presume for legal reasons, but move to somewhere. Uh, why do you want them moved? It doesn't matter. Then a list was drawn up, supposedly, and the horses on it were shipped out. 20 minutes later, there was a second order. All medications were to be removed from the barns to be collected by an assistant trainer. Uh, the following morning, two inspectors from the IHRB arrived they were expected. So there was a clear out of horses and medication the morning uh, before the IHRB arrived for an inspection. And that's when Mahan texts Lynn Hillier. They are a step ahead of you. Hillier, thanks. Speak tomorrow if you have time. Man, that's no problem, Lynn. Uh, now, Paul Kimmich says the Sunday Independent made several unsuccessful efforts to contact Lynn Hillier last week. Uh, they got a a statement talking about prearranged inspections uh, to uh, a change of training premises, which is standard procedure. That doesn't clear very much, but he couldn't get an interview or words from Lynn Hillier about these um, 
accusations or this information. In October 2020, uh, Bulger, Jim Bulger, obviously in conversation here with Stephen Mann, decided to go public with his concerns about a lack of uh, policing in racing. Um, so we'll park me detailing the piece for a moment. These are extraordinary uh, claims. I don't think they'll utterly shock anyone either. It's fair to say, Shane, I mean, if uh, there is a sense that there is an issue in this sport and who knows how far it goes back. But uh, presumably, if there has been an issue in the sport, then these kind of mechanisms would be necessary. Yeah. And look, I'm not sure how often somebody has spoken as openly on the record mm. um, as as our informer is here in this piece. Um, but it it is very, very stark when, when you see it thrown out so clearly there. And I suppose part of what's sucking me into the whole thing, Joe, is I'm 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 still somewhat unsure about Stephen Mahan in this. Is is he the hero of this piece? Is he is he still you know, there still has to be an element of a villain based on, on what we're reading there at the start and I was very, you know, I was travelling up in the car and I was very close to doing two things. I was very close to A, googling him to see what more I could learn about him and, and then B, very close to giving somebody that, like Johnny Ward who I get on well with, who'd know more about this kind of stuff a call to get a bit of background on it and it's almost like, again it's, if you're watching that Net, Netflix series, I, I don't want to spoil the next <laughs> the next part of the series for myself so I'm, I've, I'm purposely kind of leaving myself blank there in terms of it all because I want to see right well let's see what way Paul paints it yeah. but um, I think not everybody will take that approach I think a lot of people might want to know a bit more about um, about this guy straight away you know yeah uh, Kieran, we'll come back to Shane's point there in a moment just on the, the claims the details that he gives here laying it all out how things are done is uh, very interesting to say the least yeah, yeah. Well, well. Without going back too far, just just earlier on, you were you were you were setting up that those comments about you know the the, the neglect at at Stephen's um, yard himself. I mean, to me, if I was to be writing something like this, it's almost like you're you're setting a foundation there for Stephen Mann to not be holding him up as this angel. You know, there's a bit of a mea culpa there. There's a bit of a you know, give an inch, say, well, I have done this, so I'm not perfect, but I want to tell you more important things that are happening and more serious things that are happening. And maybe trying to create a bit of credibility around who this guy is. And I think I'm I'm getting the sense of that from how Paul's written it. In the same way that Paul wrote a rough ride where he had to admit to doing stuff himself, you know, uh, you know, taking taking what he took in cycling. There's a bit of a, you know, I've made my mistakes but I want you to believe me because I've been honest about that. Now listen to me further. And when he's saying about, you know, making those questions about, you know, the owners and the complaints and whether whether complaints about that was their compensation claimed, I think it's very strongly implicit there that they're going after the people at the top here, that these stories that are coming out, um, a lot of people know what happens. A lot of people will keep it quiet, but it ultimately should rest with the people at the top who are maybe either passing down the messages, allegedly, or are just happy to let it go because the horse goes out and, as you say, they're turned from pigeons, and pigeons into ostriches, which is a great turn of phrase, or they're, they're pissing at home in a, in a race. And I think that's where this is going. It, it's trying to take it as an argument that's been made from somebody who's maybe not so important in the greater scheme of things, but wanting to give him that credibility um, 
by holding him up as you know a slightly t- uh, tainted diamond um but he wants to kind of put that weight of validity and weight of trust behind his words um a lot of the stuff that's coming out there yeah i mean to be honest you know spending 15 20 years in sports journalism nothing really shocks you anymore no. when it comes to uh, people wanting to win or people want or a lot of money being involved and, and horse racing you know i mean i don't think horse racing would exist as a sport without money and gambling so i've, I've always had it lower down the the rung of sports personally um because of that because i don't think it exists without gambling and it's all it's a lot more focused on the on the money and the breeding and all the rest that comes in it than the actual sport itself but it's a bit of a cliffhanger a cliffhanger i don't know what we have here three four thousand words um there's a lot of laying the land there's a lot of information there there's a few i think you've actually gone through pretty much everything that i highlighted so i can't read out any more of those quotes no that's okay but towards the end um if you want me to jump towards the end there um do you know, I'll, I, 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 I'll, I'll jump back in and then by all yeah. means uh, come back to me. So Jim Bulger now very involved. So uh, Jim Bulger now meets with Lynn Hillier, the chief veterinary officer, on the back of his comments, which were in the Irish field and uh, the Racing Post. And he, he doubled down on that interview uh, last summer with Paul Gimmage in the Sunday Independent. And uh, when Bulger doubled down, Paul points out in uh, last June 2021, he was effectively disowned by the body representing his peers. The Irish Racehorse Trainers Association said it was not aware of the concerns he had raised. And Paul Kimmich says Bulger would have seen that coming. He would have understood understood the default reaction for those upset by the unwelcome claims of whistleblower is to shoot the messenger. And... Paul says, Paul Kimmich says, the problem for those upset with Bulger, however, is that he has too much respect in the sport to be shot down or silenced. His credentials unimpeachable. One of the greatest Irish trainers in history. Far easier to attack the credibility of a lesser training mortal, preferably with, with preferably one with some convenient stains on his character, a man like Stephen Mahan, say. And uh, the piece concludes, I mean, it, it, there's a, the way it's, it's, there's an insinuation, I suppose, which we have to take seriously and also deal with carefully. So, uh, both Bulger and Mahan, according to this piece, have the sense that Lynn Hillier is keen to do something, quote, keen to do something. Um, and so they've had calls, they've had messages. At one stage, Mahan texts her to say, a lot of horses now running badly. They're afraid to give them anything, as in the trainers are afraid to give them anything, hence they're running badly. And Hillier responds with, good morning. Well, we just have to keep going. Mahan, you're doing a great job. Thank God the field is starting to level out. Hillier, the next bit of testing will take it on a level again. Thanks for your help to date. Man, that's good. Keep up the good work. And Paul Kimmage concludes the piece by saying seven weeks later, and this is back to the opening of the piece, which is the four year ban. Stephen Mahan is uh, serving minus six months on appeal, but the four year ban for offences over animal welfare. Seven weeks later, after that text exchange, the IHRB inspectors rushed into his yard and Mahan's world came crashing down around him. Now, the insinuation is that these are connected, I think. That's what I took from it, that... He's turned whistleblower in effect, Lynn Hillier, very well intentioned. And yet, isn't this a coincidence that as he has started to spill the beans, that he's mm-hmm. had people turn up at his yard, inspect him, four year ban? Yeah. Is that, that what you took from it? Yeah, definitely. Look, it's, it's you know, it's Bulger is <clears throat> held in such high esteem. We can't lay a glove on you. But I'll tell you what, um, Mahan is absolutely not held in the same high esteem, so we're definitely going to we're definitely going to lay a few punches on you. Is is kind of the way he's wrapping it up there, isn't it? Yeah, that's the way I took it. Look, I did Google Stephen Mahan um, because I, I'm not as au fait with this world as I need to be. Mm. 
And uh, for me, what you're well, look, there's the there, there's loads of reading on this case in 2021 where there was a two day hearing and there was a panel chaired by Justice Tony Hunt over 16 hours of evidence, 13 witnesses. And for back to Paul's point about certain owners not being unhappy, or did they, did they speak at the hearing for man? That suggests maybe they did. Mm. Um, but and they also say in the in the piece in the 42 man showed remorse in this uh, hearing, but. With horse A, which was put down, Mahan contended the horse was injured during schooling one hour before the inspection. The IHRB argued the injury was more long standing, was likely to have occurred eight days before. And the ruling said, on any assessment of the evidence, it is manifestly clear that Mr. Mahan's conduct is injurious to the good reputation of horse racing. As a license holder, he failed in his duties towards the horse in his care by failing to adequately supervise them and to identify even their most basic welfare needs. Now, I don't you can't prejudge this piece because this is a long this mm. is a two or three parter so next week it says next week the IHRB versus Stephen Mahan so that's a, that suggests we're getting really into the nuts and bolts of this but I did on googling and realised there's a, a piece going back for instance 2008 Alison Bray Colin Bartley and the Irish Independent banned for trainer of horse that ate its own legs so in 2008 Stephen Mahan this isn't mentioned in this piece today but there was a four-month licence suspension by the Turf Club over his ill-treatment of a horse. Trainer Stephen Mann's treatment of Pike Bridge brought the horse racing community into disrepute, it ruled. So if you're of a sensitive disposition, this isn't the nicest story, just be warned. Uh, Mr Mann, he was then 39, found guilty yesterday of two breaches of rules laid down by racing's governing body at a hearing in the Curry yesterday. He appeared before the licence body after the Dublin Circuit Civil Court last year in 2007 ordered him to pay damages of more than €35,000 for the mistreatment of the racehorse owned by Patrick Doherty. So the six-year-old chaser Pike Bridge was, brought, was bought in 1997 by dairy owner Patrick Doherty. In 01, he put the horse in the care of Stephen Mann for training. And Mr Doherty was tipped off in September that Pike Bridge was injured. He contacted Mr Mann, was told the injuries were minor. Mr Doherty, this is the owner, travelled from Derry to the stables and found the horse in so much pain that it had eaten its own legs. Mr Mann was reported to animal welfare officers over the health of the horse. A post-mortem examination revealed that the horse had self-mutilated both of its own both, sorry, the horse had self-mutilated both of its four flexor tendons, leaving it unable to stand and the horse had to be put down. And in the uh, court decision, which awarded the €34,000 to the mayor's owner, Judge uh, Alison Lindsay, who heard that the horse Pike Bridge had eaten its four legs to the bone to consume excruciatingly painful tendons, said the manner in which the racehorse had been treated did not mer- bear thinking about. So that goes back to 07, 08. For me, that is of colossal relevance mm. to this uh, piece, Kieran. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't until you you mentioned that to, to us um, <clears throat> pre-broadcast that uh, that I'd heard that, and as I said there, like I I kind of thought that 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 Paul's writing this and has included the the stuff at the start because he couldn't not include it, um, and it was a bit of a mea culpa and it was laying the foundations for for what kind of person we're dealing with here. You know, if you're talking about a whistleblower, you have to kind of verify exactly how valuable they are, where they're coming from, and all the rest, and to leave that out i mean there was a mention there of grisly details of, of photographs I, I don't know if that might re- might be referring to that or not no it's not that's um, that's that's relating to that's the case issue, that's that's relating one. to the case last summer for his current ban right okay yeah so uh, I, i'd be loath to imagine that paul doesn't know this and it hasn't come up somewhere else so uh, i mean i'd be i'd be kind of cautious on, on speculating on why that would be left out but it does seem like quite a big deal well, does to it, leave out especially Does it discredit Sorry. Stephen Mahan as a whistleblower? 
That's the that's a very interesting question. I'm not sure it totally does discredit. Yeah, I, I don't think it does. I, I, I don't think it does. I, I, I would be very interested in Stephen Mahan's um, motivation on two fronts. I'd be interested in his motivation for his contact with Lynn Hillier. Mm. Um, and I would be interested in his motivation for what appears he has cooperated with Paul on this piece. Um, and I'd be, in, you know, it'd be you would like to see what his thinking on on both of those fronts were, and maybe there's nothing but good intentions on both of those fronts. But look, it's it, it's hard to get away from the fact that it does seem odd that we haven't been given that detail. I think you can give us that detail, yeah, and 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 then still give us what follows after that. Yeah, I agree. I don't. It's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. So absolutely. No, no, exactly. It, the the yeah, well, neglect I mean, issue can very much stand. But the details he has, I mean, it's in terms of his motivation, Shane, it does seem he's a trainer. He's struggling badly. Lots of medium to small size trainers were, especially around that time. And he gets the call yeah. from his friend John Doe. Mm. And John Doe says, well, this is what you're up against. This is why you're struggling. And lays it all out to him. And then he says, well, this is an outrage I'm going to Lynn Hillier mm. that's absolutely kosher for me that's, that makes perfect sense yep. but I suppose yeah, where we yeah. get into when we when we get into this connection between him turning whistleblower and people arriving at his yard then like it is possible it is entirely possible that somebody who had the case in 07-08 has people arriving in his yard yeah. because he may well be on a watch list of sort as a result of that case he appealed that case by the way in 07-08 and it was uh, rejected the appeal so it's it's not so much it's not so much the the word the 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 description of what's going on he gives from John Doe about trainer X by the way oh, yeah, who's we, trainer we, X yeah. you know it's not that 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 mm. for me it doesn't undermine that no. um fatally but i suppose if we're if we're talking about IHRB and how they behaved around Stephen Mahan then I think the 07 case has to come into this yeah, conversation. Particularly in the way he wraps yeah. it up. You know, yeah. as we say, he's wrapping it up there that, well, this is why they've arrived in his yard. Whereas, as you were saying, there could be a very, very different reason. There for are it. other reasons. And as, as readers, we don't know. Like you didn't, I wasn't aware of the case. You weren't aware of the case. So that's the issue. Now, next week, maybe we get into that massively. And then, and then you say, well, you have to yeah. take it all in, in its, in its uh, completeness. But there were probably, there arguably was space here. In the to, four pages to have addressed it. Oh, there, def- yeah. there, there, definitely, there definitely was. There's definitely, there's definitely space there. I mean, if, if you want to go into family details and growing up and, and talk about the background in that regard to, to give even more depth to, to the character, let's call him, you can definitely include this. I, I think there's a, there might be something of a kindred spirit here in terms of uh, Kimmage having been a whistleblower and thinking, do you know what? I get, I get shit all the time for people saying, well, you did stuff, so who are we to listen mm. to you? But it's about when you make that cross over to the good side let's call it there's there's been guys who were on the u.s postal team that were there when lance armstrong was doing the thing and, and they came out eventually got ahead of the curve um or ahead of the the, the police car let's call it and maybe Stephen mahan might have similar motives maybe it, it is the things were going downhill and they did and ultimately i think paul would mostly look at things and say well you're never too late to come out and be that whistleblower but, with good mm, intentions. Does that? But does that not make it even more surprising for you, Kieran? Because, like, when you look at at the whistleblowing role that that Paul played, Paul absolutely yeah. went here. Here is me. Here is who I am. Warts and all. Full Michael, here, yeah, exactly. And now, here is what I'm going to tell you. Whereas he hasn't quite done the same here. I don't feel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul's telling his own story. You know, this. This is. You're, you're there as a conduit for somebody else. So we don't know exactly yeah. yet 
what Stephen's story is. Um, it's clearly not the same. It's not cut and dry. I think Paul got quite disillusioned with where he was. He was competing. This guy's not a jockey. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's he's a trainer. It, it, there, there's a lot of small differences that are there. But I think ultimately the, what I'm getting from it, and there's there's a real cliffhanger at the end, and it's no it's no surprise Dick Francis was writing stories in in uh, in, in in the world of jockeys. But there's a real cliffhanger here. It's, it feels like the end of a first chapter, and I'm I'm looking forward to it myself. But I think it's really, I think they're they're all coming together, including Bulger, and it's pointing towards the upper echelons of this sport. Well, that's and I think that's, that's where it's going to go. That's very true. That's very true. I mean, Paul Kimmage's credentials here are impeccable needless to say and the fact that next week promises the IHRB versus Stephen Mahon suggests that there is mm. information well, there we, which we is saw, going to be of, of huge significance potentially and did, and even even if there isn't just the the testimony of how it's done at a yard trainer X I mean look legally this stuff is so difficult to produce and I'm yeah, sure yeah. I'm sure Paul Gimmich and the Sunday Independent will have nothing more than to tell you who trainer X is and who John Doe is but this is where things get incredibly difficult but and it's it, very it's very easy it, it, it would have been very easy to there's a lot of information there and it would have been very easy another journalist may have tried to give us all that information and done it in a manner that bored the pants off us because there's so much you get but it's you know it's just so brilliantly written that you do you're you really for all the world as you're reading it you feel like you're watching a movie and it it it, it, it absolutely dr- it's, pulls you in big time it's know? gripping and even even it's if and, sorry Karen, come in in a, a sec i was just going to say but even you know if uh, this information surrounding what's done at trainer x even if this isn't absolutely widespread even if this is in a very small proportion of yards then it's absolutely damning for the sport sorry Karen. Mm. i was just going to ask shane is it better than pam and tommy because i'm not watching <laughs> Uh, you're you're not missing out massively, no, Kieran, to be honest. <laughs> um, Thanks. Let's 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 park that. So next week it promises the IHRB versus Stephen Mahan, and it does it does end on this. Well, is it coincidental that the IHRB arrive at his yard seven weeks on from you know this these discussions with uh, Lynn Hillier? And there's there's an obvious implication there, I think, which we'll hear more about next week so that's the Sunday Independent I think you need to read the piece in full that would be the other point as well it's absolutely worth getting your hands on pages 2, 3, 4 and 5 of the Sunday Independent uh, something totally different then where do we go next for a change of pace Damien Duff Damien Duff Damien Duff here's the thing about Damien Duff right here's as, as, as Dan McDonald puts this so Damien Duff the reluctant uh, superstar at the moment in the League of Ireland where uh, Dan is talking about the loss on Friday night, sellout crowd at Tolka, 4,150. Uh, Duff, by all accounts, needed uh, persuasion to do the press conference 48 hours. Kieran, you're making an unbelievable racket with the newspaper. Will you stop? For God's sake, Sorry man. Sorry about that. I'll have <laughs> oh, to go to the <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, Duff needed persuasion to do a press conference 48 hours before the game and uh, yet Dan says even though he does that he speaks so openly about himself talked about advice from Brennan Rogers, the perils of navigating daft.ie on behalf of his squad and more besides um, but this, this sums up Duff in I suppose one quote at the moment and his place in League of Ireland I'm glad it's over he said with a rice smile about getting his first match overway and just the general attention on him I don't like the spotlight I'm sure other managers are going Duff getting the spotlight I don't want it so they can have it alright now if he's going to throw out quotes like that as Damien Duff I'm sorry the spotlight is staying on you oh there's going to be a microphone in your in your face 24-7 isn't there and I find it actually 
Always leave the effings in. I, I read Dan's piece and I, I read Philip Quinn's piece, and Philip took out the effings. And I, I'm like, no, that that adds the color. That lets us see who the who the person really is and how they communicate. Firmly, oh, um, yeah. be what I'd say. But look, it's impossible not to be kind of captivated by Damien and the whole story around how he's going to get on this year with Shell. Like it's. You know, he's probably in what the top five names in the history of kind of Irish football pretty much. Yeah. And here he is in in a league that, you know, so many would feel doesn't get the the exposure that it needs. And look, obviously I've I've been there to a certain extent and it's it's really interesting to to hear his comments during the week about the you know, going on daft, I've been there and all that kind of problem. And even that's the easier side of it. It's it's, it's when the people that he they're renting properties off are gonna start phoning them back to say the boys have put a hole in the <laughs> wall or the boys haven't left the bins out in, in two months and, and stuff like that. And it appears as though he is the guy taking those phone calls. So he really, really is absolutely at, at the coal face. I mean, the game itself is is almost an aside from it. Shells as uh, believe it or not, for a team who were beaten three 0 were, were actually very, very good the other night. So they were and he he he, he that team have the look of a, a team that can do quite well to my mind um, but yeah it's it's all the stuff around it it's handling the press conference it's handling um, it's handling a run of poor results all those kind of things he, he did a he did a podcast quite a while back now with, with Graham Hunter um, oh yeah where he spoke about all the different managers and what he'd learned positively or negatively from them all and it was absolutely brilliant listening it really really was a brilliant listening and I'm now watching what he's doing off the field and on the field to see, well, what is he grabbing from those different people and what is he trying to implement here? And, you know, in the early minutes of the game the other night, the camera panned to him and he was absolutely berating his goalkeeper for not getting the play moving quicker. He felt there was a counter-attack on and, and you're thinking, OK, well, he's definitely a stick guy here. And then he's taking players off at 3-0 down, making substitutions and but warmly embracing those players that are coming off and you're saying, you know, off this, he, he clearly is, you know, does have both sides to it and will he know when to when to go with with, with the stick, when to go with the carrot and I, I just think watching how he conducts himself this year and how his team play is going to be a real narrative and, and the big thing for me is I, I keep arguing that the League of Ireland needs to create more narratives for itself, that me as a passing NBA fan, I get sucked back into NBA when there's a narrative around a particular player, a particular game, a particular rivalry, things like that and thankfully here we have a we have a brilliant brilliant narrative that will suck the, the most traditional or, or non-traditional I should say non-League of Ireland fans in I think Joe yeah Kieran. yeah Duffer's always been different you know there's always been that little bit of difference about him that authenticity uh, I'll be honest I never saw him ending up uh, <laughs> working as a manager in Talca Park just did not see that coming but from back in the day I don't know if, if both of you remember uh, I think well, when there were CDs, Chelsea had a CD and all the players picked their favourite song and, and Duffer being this incredibly cool, young, rich Irishman put down Joxer by Christy Moore. And I thought, God, he's different, you know. And, and, and like the fact that he was there saying um, it, it, was just, it was still a massive night in my life he was talking about, even though they lost 3-0. Uh, I'm awfully disappointed, but I'll go home, have a glass of red and sleep well. Um I said to them before that I was the proudest man in Ireland walking the squad and the staff out on the pitch because that's how proud I am of them all. They're just fantastic guys. We're close-knit. We'll move on. He seems to have a real kind of warmth about him and there'll be a real understanding there of the players. Um, he's somebody who never really took it for granted what he had. Um, he, he made some peculiar decisions as a player, I always thought. I mean, going to Newcastle, a couple of other choices that he had he, along he the way. That, he he always, regrets that, I think. Big time. 
<laughs> well, yeah, but at the time you make your decisions, you think they're the right ones. And the fact that he thought it was the right one then was was interesting. Um, but to go as a coach at Celtic with Brendan Rodgers, to leave that just to come home because he felt homesick, to go to Ireland and then step out on that, which, you know, to many people, Shane, would be a, a dream job mm. just to be involved in that. And now to be in Talca Park. I mean, it's, it's it seems like he's regressed if you, if, if you want to be very blunt and step outside. But he, he'll back himself in all those decisions. And it's fascinating to see what he can do. I, I think it was amazing that there was 4,000 people there. Uh, there's a lot of talk about Save Talca Park. Yeah. I mean, I, I, worked, I worked there first in 2002, I think. It hasn't changed. It's a dump. It's, it's an awful place. It's not a great place to work. It, it was great when Pat Fennan had the big games. But it's, it's not fit for purpose. And I don't know really... You know, we can we get into a huge other discussion about whether it should be or not. But that that duffer has that excitement and that enthusiasm in that place says a lot. And it will be, as Shane says, it'll be a huge narrative. Um, it's it's like Frank Lampard's Everton, Stephen Gerrard's Aston Villa. We have Damien Duff, Shelburne, and it'll definitely be something to watch. One of the things that really interests me about Joe as well is um, I remember speaking to to Bernard Jackman before, and I, I won't be able to remember the coach. You, you might Ber- Bernard Jackman was talking to me about a, a coach, and he said so often as the coach or as the manager, you're making a decision based on having to satisfy the board, having to satisfy the fans, having to, make, and you might actually go against your own gut. You make a decision because you're you're trying to satisfy all these other people because predominantly you need to hold on to your job um, and he said they had a manager I'm not sure where it was Leinster or somewhere like this he said they had a manager where the club needed him more than he ever needed us he was uh, much Michael Checker Michael Checker Michael, is it Michael okay Checker. and he's talking about how that the, the fact that Checker never needed the job or never needed to felt never felt that he needed to please people or anything like that and was kind of financially independent meant that he was always able to just go with his gut and make the right decision and that reminds me of this with Duffer. Like Duffer is never going to have to please anybody here. Duffer is going to do what he wants to do 100% of the time. It's not like he's you know in trouble next week if he's sacked and he doesn't have the paycheck. Yeah. And I think that will give him great freedom to really, really put his own stamp Ooh. on it, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. Well, we'll watch with interest. So that's just match one. And he's, you know, like, again, in speaking of narratives, the League of Ireland coverage is about Duff. And that's that's just where we are at the moment, <laughs> understandably. Uh, quite yeah. a few columnists are talking about the Camilla Valieva situation, which is an absolute disgrace. Like, there's no two ways about it. It's it's really shocking. And Deb Walsh writing about it on the back page. We have Ollie Holt in the Mail on Sunday referring to it as child abuse. And really, I don't know if you can disagree with that. If you're coming late to this story, uh, Camilla Valieva representing Russia under whatever their official uh, name is at the moment, because obviously Russia uh, suspended from the Olympics, but representing Russia in effect, 15 years old, over the last year has been the figure skater uh, of unparalleled brilliance. And this was going to be a crowning moment for her. She's 15 years of age. Uh, She's part of the Russian team that won gold and then she was going for gold in the individual event just in the past week. But what blew up a week ago is that she tested positive in December, in December for uh, a banned substance. And also there were two other substances found in her system as well. One of them, L-carnitine, was a real favourite of Alberto Salazar, who emailed Lance Armstrong Gidley, you might remember, to tell him that you wouldn't believe what happens when you infuse all this L-carnitine into your system. So 15 years of age, these three substances in her system. Because she's 15, she's a protected uh, person. And so, again, don't ask me how, but we reached a point where legally she was allowed to compete, despite the positive test in December. And so huge stress, 
huge pressure. She was on Thursday ahead of the finale to the singles event. She was still very much in line for a gold, but she had a disastrous four minutes on the ice. Uh, twice she fell. Uh, she went to pieces. It was just nightmarish. And at the end, she almost waved her, her right hand, as Eamon Sweeney described it, almost a, a gesture of dismissal and disgust as if she were pushing dis- the disastrous routine away from her. Perhaps she was also just uh, pushing the outside world that had judged her. And also, he says, everyone who had betrayed her, those responsible for administering the cocktail of drugs that resulted in her doping violation, the Russian anti-doping agency that waived a suspension and uh, the Court of Arbitration for Sport that turned down the WADA appeal against uh, her partaking in the Olympics. Uh, It took all of them to make sure this 15-year-old girl took to the ice on Thursday under the kind of pressure few Olympians have ever experienced. She should never have been there. And, And he outlines that she was supposed to be the star of these games. And he said the last uh, figure skater who attracted this much much attention or the competition that attracted this much attention was the 1994 Winter Olympics clash between Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Simultaneously, victim and villain Valieva was both Tanya or Tanya and uh, Nancy. Uh, It's just an outrage, uh, Kieran. 15 years of age, three substances in her system. Her story uh, was that she accidentally took her grandfather's uh, heart medication and that's how the illegal substance entered her uh, system. But uh, I think most people have a a broader sense of what's going on. We've all done it, Joe. We've all done it. Um, Yeah, it's a bit sad. I actually watched it on, was it it Wednesday or Thursday, Thursday, the final? strangely have a passing interest in this stuff um and it was 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 in, incredible to watch and just to see that, that like there was another narrative before that about how the russians had been you know uh, nailing the quad jumps basically let's call it that, that there were four spins in the air and they were the only country that could do it and i think three three of their girls were able to do it and no other country in the world uh, had, had, had ice, ice skaters that could do it and I was thinking that's that's incredible in itself and then you just kind of look at it and you go again is it too good to be true we've had this conversation um, I think the last time I was on with you was with Roy Curtis and we were talking about the loss of um, you know we, you have to suspend your disbelief to enjoy some sports now cycling etc etc um, and the women's individual figure skating as Ollie Holt puts it you know it is the highest profile event of the Olympics but this made the, the audience feel sick. It made us look at the Olympics and feel only disgust and grief for what they've come to stand for in 2022. The longer these games have gone on, and again, remember they are in Beijing and there's a lot of, there's a lot of stick about that already, uh, the more we have under, underlined what we already knew, that the Olympics has become a movement that is enthralled to power elites, a movement that will sacrifice anything and anyone, even a 15-year-old, in its pursuit of riches and influence and its obeisance obeisance to dictators. It fits in, sadly, with its appeasement of China over the treatment of tennis player Peng Shui. So it, it is just a, it's a long list of strands of, you know, distasteful narratives that come together in one place. And um, if I can just jump quickly to Eamon Sweeney's piece, he speaks about the uh, the coach yeah. and her coach. Her coach looked very frosty, excuse the pun, when, when, when her skaters were coming off the rink. And uh, Terry um, Tutbaritsa. Um, she's already a, a controversial figure. In 2014, she said that her star skater, Yulia Lipnitskaya, largely existed on a diet of powdered nutrients. And three years later, she, she retired after struggling with injuries and, and anorexia. But there's another sad thing here is that um, you go back to her own um, her own career when she was, was younger, she um, had a spinal injury 
and she ended up skating in ice shows in America. And at one stage, she was so, so short of money that she attended Baptist church services in Oklahoma just to get the food on offer afterwards. So a lot of this is, you know, and again, we've heard of we've heard of it in China in the 90s with the with the long distance athletes there that Sonia O'Sullivan used to come up against in the early 2000s. And again, a lot of the time in Russia and in sports where, you know, it, it's younger, younger athletes mm-hmm. will be the ones who excel and just the pressure they're on. And if you're coming from certain backgrounds, it's just accepted. It's um, it's it's encouraged then from those above who want to portray the power of the country uh, through success. And, you know, it's easy to say that she's a bit of um, she's a bit of a victim herself, but that doesn't help you know, that she hasn't stopped passing this on to a 15-year-old who was incredibly talented. Um, her, her granddad's drugs might have helped her, you know, one or two percent, but she looked she looked like she would have already gone out and done it. And that's all, that's often the worry, isn't it? What what could they have achieved without having to cross the line? I'm not saying she crossed the line. This must have been done on her behalf and she may have been forced or she may have been told it was something else. But it's, um, it's pretty horrific. And just the final one, um, Eamon Sweeney there says, you know what, this ice skating program is less toxic than the most, much vaunted US women's gymnastic program where team doctor Larry Nasser sexually abused hundreds of teenagers for over a decade. So it is quite easy to look and say, you know, from our cosseted Western world that this is Russia, this is China, but um, a nice little reminder and contextualization there from, from Eamon Sweeney about the, the US gymnastics program. Mm. Some of the... Um you get the feeling that some of the the training regimes the the likes of the ice skating and and gymnastics and anything really that involves predominantly young female athletes is nearly too strong a word the the training routines just seem absolutely insane like I'd say they make a Mm. And you know, an army camps seem like a holiday camp, really. Um, and Sweeney details a few like are burnt out by seventeen, and yeah. you know retirements due to anorexia. And the coach is quoted saying, "As in our sport, every two hundred grams matter." And she said of one a star skater that she existed on a diet of powdered nutrients. This was the coach yeah. saying this. You know, is almost a, this is what you have to do to make it kind of a thing. Encouraged and, to spit out water rather than to drink it. Yeah. Um, and a former athlete said of her, "If you're tired or hurt, you will take your place on the ice all the same." Even if you have two broken toes, you do the same thing a hundred times a day, two hundred if necessary. Like because it's a conveyor belt. So like, uh, you know, get yeah. the fourteen, fifteen-year-old, squeeze every drop out of them. Mm. Oh, they're they're emotionally distraught and burnt out by seventeen. I don't Onto care. The There's a fourteen-year-old mm. superstar around the corner. So it's insane. It's mental. And, and it, it is success for the country. Again, it, it, yeah. it's it's mostly for the flag. It's not for the individual. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any. Um, I don't think there's any coincidence there. There's one other one there. Ironically, well, like, ironically, they can't even fly the flag at the moment. But yeah. Yeah, well, they're the Russian Olympic Committee, which you know, I think Ali Holt or, or Sport Illustrated, sorry, wonderfully put it as a, it's a shell corporation is for, the, for the, Russia. Is the Olympics not dead to you both? Like yeah. I, I don't even watch the Olympics. Like it's it's you know the way you you would see pieces going. How much more can the sport withstand or the movement withstand before way, way past that? Like, so fifteen <laughs> yeah. years old that conversation. Way like, past that line. I, yeah. I try and take annual leave if, if I can is. during it. It's pointless. <laughs> I really do. Like, I agree with you. I agree with you. You, you, you. I might just about still tune in for the hundred meter final yeah. and you'll because go with a, the Irish boxers. Because it's a ten second investment of your time. Yeah. So fair enough. And yet the Irish boxers, if you believe in them, which I think we all do, and you know that's that's the good thing we. We have our own national stories that we can get behind but like wait, as, wait, as a broad movement we don't wait wait and wait until we don't believe in our own ones though you know that did happen in was it 2004 um and then other stories developed yeah. so i mean again to think that we're all entirely 
whiter than white hair as no, well not would say, be interesting. But, yeah, I'm not saying that, but just the movement. Like, do you do you watch any race and feel confident? It's not that you're necessarily correct yeah. in saying I have reasons to be suspicious oh, yeah. here, but it's the fact that you can't fully invest in it. Like, if you're if you're, how can you invest in something that you're likely to find out the results the result was false within the next two to four years? Anyway, you feel yeah. a fool. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, well, it wasn't just yesterday that one of the British sprinters, you know, finally it was, uh, I'm not it was confirmed. Sure. The, it was the four by one hundred meters. Um, right. The British team, yeah. and uh, the, one of the good things was one of, another guy on the four by four came out and said, I'm, "I'm, I'm sick. I'm disgusted with CJ for doing that and denying me a medal." So you know, maybe look. Ultimately, as as Paul again, going back to Paul Kimmage, uh, it's going to have to be within. It's going to have to be the people willing to speak up and say, "This is what's happening," but. As, as more and more money comes into it again that becomes more difficult yeah it's, there's, there's no chance of that ever happening really like who's going to speak up like, what political we, papers lads let's, what, let's what, what, move what, on. Are, what are we actually expecting to happen you know <laughs> um, we, we're kind of out of time like we, we'd hope to get to Brennan Fanning's a very interesting piece on Italian rugby going backwards and uh, Dermot Galise I know you picked out his piece on Eduardo Romero Kieran, so people can check yeah, that out yeah it's a great piece um, so loads of little gems yeah we might and, and just a very final quick word Shane Michael Dignan is, is calling on every county board to read the Talent Academy and Player Development Review Committee report released in 2019 to I suppose better cater for especially teenagers 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 where the drop-off rate is so severe and he's he's saying as chair of Offaly GA I'm calling on everyone to read it because there's loads of great stuff in it mm. and are we implementing enough is his point. Yeah he makes a couple of great points on it just in terms of, of player development and how best to go about it and he's talking about things being looked at again but that this was actually conducted in 2019 and then because Covid hit it was never properly implemented and he's saying well ins- instead of having more views and more ideas let's just go back and, and, and implement this because some of the findings that he draws out from it in, in terms of inclusivity and, and, and you know recruitment and retention and all of that make complete and utter sense um, so just reading it and nodding my head a lot as I was going along so anybody who's uh, into the coaching and into player development pathway of players is definitely we're throwing your eyes over yeah yeah mail on Sunday page 66 fellas thanks so much for that Shane Keegan thank you for coming to the studio Kieran O'Reilly much appreciated Kieran thanks Mel. cheers Joe thanks guys